Welcome to the show for sinners and sufferers. My name is Cody, and this is the sixth part of our series through 1 Timothy. We've been doing this for a while now, and today we are wading into the controversy, into the the fray of Christian debate. Uh, This might be a little bit of a longer episode. We're going to be talking about church order, specifically about the roles and behavior of men and women in the gathered church and we're going to be doing this by looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, which says this, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. If you're just now jumping in on on this video and you haven't been following through this whole series all the way through 1 Timothy, Paul is currently talking about church order, the, the functioning of the church, the way the church is supposed to operate. And we can tell by the simple word then or therefore in some translations that this is connected to the previous text. This is part of one continuing thought. This text, this portion here cannot be understood divorced from the rest of the letter. We can't just pull out this section and talk about just this section. It's part of one whole letter, one whole argument. And Paul here is instructing on the right behavior of the church in light of what was established previously. That is in response to what we read in chapter one, the disruption of false teaching in the church, as well as in light of grace and the gospel of redemption. And Paul's first instruction in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2 was on what the church is to pray for, on the content of our prayers, that we pray for all people, for kings and rulers, to pray for peace and calm, an environment where the church can flourish, the gospel can go forth unimpeded. Now Paul says, in every place, and that is not to say literally everywhere, but in every in every church, in every gathering, in every place, the men are to pray in this posture, lifting holy hands, and from this demeanor, without anger or quarreling. And the posture of praying with hands lifted is a, a common Jewish manner of praying that, that be, would be kind of like saying eyes closed and heads bowed in most Western churches today. The significance of what Paul is saying is that the hands being lifted are holy. That is, the person taking the posture is coming before God undefiled. We get this picture uh, of this concept of of holy hands in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, when God says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. We see a person's hands in this context represents 
our deeds. If we are not living holy as Christians, if we're not living in line with our new identities in Christ, our hands are defiled, they're unholy. And Paul here is listing two possible defilements that make our hands unholy. And he says anger and quarreling. And scripture mentions on, on several occasions factors that affect the efficacy of our prayer, that affect our ability to pray, and, and as God says, his willingness to even listen. In most cases, these factors are relationship-based. In our relationship with God, hidden sin, active plans to sin and, and doubt or a lack of trust in God's faithfulness, these are things that affect our relationship with him and hinder our prayers. In relationships with one another, unwillingness to forgive others. Jesus says in Matthew 6 that if we will not forgive others, he will not forgive us. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Peter tells husbands that improper treatment of their wives, a failure to, to respect and love their wives, hinders their prayers. And here Paul says that anger and disputing are counter to effective prayer. We learned earlier in 1 Timothy that in the church in Ephesus, Dissension and debates are plaguing the church. They're hurting the church. People were getting caught up in false teachings and endless myths. And this was creating division and distraction. So Paul now says, if we're coming into public worship with anger, with the heart of resentment for our brothers and sisters, with unresolved division and disputes, our prayer is hindered. Our worship is is just noise. In Amos 5, God tells Israel he hates the sound of their worship because they do not do justice. When our hearts are in the wrong place, God doesn't care how loud we pray or sing. Jesus gives an instruction on this in Matthew 5, 23. says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Our posture before God should be that of humility and a clear conscience. Coming before God while we think arrogantly about how others in the congregation are so dumb and wrong. We're thinking resentfully about how foolish that person was saying that stupid thing. That's going to negatively affect our, our prayers, our ability to pray coherently and to some level God's willingness to listen to our prayer. We need to resolve those things quickly so that we can come before God with holy hands. Paul goes on to say, likewise, or in a like manner, the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, modesty, self-control, and good works. As the men's fighting and anger are a disturbance in the public worship, it's affecting their prayers. So for the, so for the women is their lavish dress, their costly apparel, the self-seeking desire to be a wonder, to draw attention, to be the most beautiful one in the room. And Whenever we use this this word modesty, as we see here in a Christian context, we typically think merely of sexual modesty. And this is actually a little bit of a, a broader concept here. This is talking about humility, which is what the word modesty really is. In the context of public worship, the women are not to dress, Paul says, intentionally in a way to draw attention to themselves and thus away from the worship of God. And it is is true on one hand that as men, we need to take responsibility for the way that we are looking at women. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. 
He doesn't say if your eye causes you to sin, shame the subject of your lust for being visible. The issue in lust lies internally with the man with his perception. But there are certainly ways that women can present themselves and adorn themselves that are clearly for the purpose of looking glorious, of drawing the gaze of men and women alike. And the examples Paul gives are, are not merely about sexual lure, but about flaunting wealth and high fashion, dressing in such a way that it would cause a person to look at you and think, oh, wow. And it's not that braids and, and jewelry are inherently sinful, but the intention behind their wearing in these contexts, that they're intended to draw the eye, they're intended to garner attention and admiration. And I don't expect... Paul is saying here that women cannot put effort into looking their best. I also don't imagine that this is a, a universal application to all areas of life. We are, after all, speaking of, of church gathered in public worship here. That's what this section is about. The principle at play is that in this time of worship, in this time that we are gathered together to worship God, lifting Him on high, the directive for both men and women is to come into the public worship, to come before God, ready to give our full attention to Him. This is all about God, about how He wants to be worshipped, about how He wants His people to be peaceful, respectful, and unified in our worship. If we take this in a, a legalistic way, we can technically obey you know what if men dress lavishly what if women come in with the heart of resentment you know he didn't say those things we, we can technically obey yet we can still entirely miss the point that what paul's saying is this time is for god this is about god from here paul goes into what is today the contentious part of this text where we crash into the fray of Christian controversy. And I was really tempted to do an, an entire separate episode on just this section because it is so disputed in our current cultural moment. But these verses are not an island in Paul's letter to Timothy. This is all one progressive developing instruction for the church. And I think it's fitting that it follows immediately after he speaks of anger and disputes and how we have to leave those things when we come into the gathering, how we don't want those things hindering our worship and prayer. Then Paul goes on to say this, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And the word quietly here is the same word we just read at the last video, last episode in verse two, referring to living in a peaceful and, and quiet life. It means without contention, without arguing and vocal objection. Paul is not saying, women, when you come into the church, be silent. He's saying, don't create contention. Be peaceful. Don't be starting arguments and, and making a scene, essentially. In other places in the New Testament, even in other writings of Paul, women are specifically mentioned as praying and speaking in the church in certain contexts. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks of, women praying and prophesying in church, provided that they wear the proper head covering. And this is a, a discussion for a, another time, but the short of it is that the head covering in the Corinthian culture was a sign of authority. It was a way of saying, I am under authority. And the timeless principle there is not that women must wear hats, but that they speak in church under authority. Or to use Paul's word here in First Timothy, with submissiveness. And that word submission is a, 
a real sticking point in our cultural moment. We hate the idea of being submissive. For one part, in the West, we're strong, free, and individualistic. We never submit. But we also get hung up on this word because submission implies hierarchy. Submission implies authority. And just by nature, as sinful human beings, we, we resist authority. We don't like authority because it, it interferes with our individuality, our self-expression. It, it interferes with our freedom. If I'm under someone else's authority, that means I can't just do whatever I want. But I'd argue that not only is authority good for us, we actually do like authority when it's good and just authority, when we're on the right side of it. If you're in your car driving somewhere and some jerk comes flying by, cuts you off, nearly runs you off the road, you might be thinking, man, I hope you get pulled over. And then five minutes down the road, you see the red and blue lights flashing and the same driver's getting a ticket and you're going, yes, justice, yes. We love authority when it works as it's supposed to, when it protects us and does not abuse us and when we remain on the right side of it. Authority and submission to authority are not bad things. And what Paul is saying here is actually not a restriction, but an invitation. That the women are invited to learn in quiet submission doesn't mean the men are invited to learn in loud disruption. Submission is the regular posture of learning. In Hebrews 13, 17, all believers are told to submit to our spiritual leaders, the elders in the church. The invitation here is that women can come and learn. In a time when it was assumed that women had no need for learning, they'd learn what they needed from their husbands. Paul invites them to come, sit with the men, and learn with the same peaceful submission. Now, there is also some element here where Paul possibly needed to specifically spell out the quiet submission aspect of learning in the immediate context of the church in Ephesus because the prevailing religion in Ephesus at that time was the worship of the goddess uh, Diana or Artemis in Greek. This was a, a religion whose priests were women. It was a religion of sensuality where women ruled. And it would not be unreasonable to assume that as women were being saved out of this into Christianity, they would enter the gathering of believers and immediately start asserting themselves because they had been persons of authority. It's not hard to imagine someone who is used to running the show in Ephesus coming into the church with all of their own ideas of how things should be, of what theology should be taught and how to communicate it. This could even be the source of some of those teachers who Paul says teach as if they have understanding in chapter one. Even though these women are welcome to come and learn, they would need to be told to do so peaceably and with submission, to not be arguing with everything the elders are teaching. And I say this is a, a possible motivation behind Paul's emphasis on peaceful submission, but I cannot say it, it's confidently. You can't say that's definitely what's at play. However, I think it is worth mentioning because there is a, an increasingly prevalent view today that believes the context of the cult in Ephesus is the key to understanding everything Paul has to say about women here. As Paul goes on to say, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Some would argue that these verses are only relevant to the church in Ephesus at that time, and Paul is only saying that because of the potential for abuse by these former priestesses coming into the church. 
And I myself wholeheartedly believed that was the case for many years. I read this passage in that way, and I even taught others to read it this way. But the more time I spend with this text, the more convinced I become that I was wrong. Certainly that context is not irrelevant to the passage. I think it likely is why Paul is so clear on the subject in this case, why he spells it out, what he wants to see from men and women, where elsewhere in scripture this is somewhat inferred by comparison. But to dismiss this entirely, to just set this passage aside because of the context, to claim it is irrelevant to the greater church is just an unfaithful reading of this passage. For one, this entire section has been addressed to the plurality of churches, to the greater church, not just to one specific congregation. And this becomes incredibly clear when we just continue reading and view this whole paragraph, when we view it in its entirety and consider every word that Paul says, especially this single word, for. That is, for this reason or because. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. If we say that Paul only makes this assertion and only gives this direction because of the current cultural context, we're calling Paul a liar because he himself says the reason for this directive is created order, the creation and fall of man in Genesis. Not something specific and unique to Ephesus, but something of universal relevance. We cannot merely dismiss what Paul says here. We have to reckon with it. And there are literal essays and even books written on virtually every word in these last four verses. What is meant by teach? What is meant by authority? Is this referring to one action, authoritative teaching, or to two separate things, authority and teaching? Frankly, a lot of these discussions are are mostly fruitless and they become very circular. If you read every resource on the specific meanings of Greek words, you end up going in circles and you find people's sources for their argument is using their argument as a source and it's just, just a mess. The word translated teach in this case is clearly a word in scripture used as a reference to, to communicating true doctrine, to teaching the faith. It's the word used whenever Jesus is teaching to crowds. It's what we might call today preaching. The word authority in this text is the Greek word authentio. And this is a a rarely used word that has had a, a range of meaning throughout history from meaning abusive domineering to also meaning just asserting authority. And I've spent hours. I've spent hours on just this word, reading paper after paper, hoping to be convinced that it is referring to some sort of abuse of domineering. I wanted to be convinced that this is not referring to eldership authority in the church, but some sort of abuse of authority that that Paul is not permitting women to exercise. But it's honestly difficult to be convinced with the limited evidence. At best, we can say for sure that this is referring to an authority taken and not an innate authority or a given authority. Paul's saying he does not allow women to claim authority in the gathered church that is not theirs to claim. 
specifically says he does not permit a woman to teach or claim authority over men because Adam was made first and then Eve, and Eve was deceived. And this might seem a little unclear, but what Paul is referring to here is as the basis for his instruction on church hierarchy, God's creation order. In part, Adam's authority in the first marriage and his relationship with Eve was on the basis of primogeniture, that is firstborn authority, a concept that is is very common in ancient cultures, that the firstborn has an innate authority by the nature of being firstborn. And God made Adam, he spoke to Adam, then he gave Adam a wife as a helper. In the original order of creation, God spoke his word to Adam and Adam spoke God's word to Eve. But the enemy then, the serpent, when he sought to deceive, went directly to Eve. He bypassed that chain and and it deceives Eve. And it doesn't say here that, that Eve actually actively did anything. The language is clear that she was deceived, that the serpent bypassed Adam to deceive Eve, who in turn gives the fruit to her husband. The implication is not that that women are more prone to deception, as some might suggest from this passage, but that God has intended for truth to be passed down in a certain way. And as in the garden, Satan bypassed God's order. He bypassed his way for, for truth to be handed down. So Paul does not want that happening in the church. This is also not to say that women are under the authority of all men, which has been a a, a weirdly common misconception. Uh, It is only ever said that a woman is under the authority of her husband, and both men and women are under the authority of their elders. And then, of course, all believers are under the authority of Christ. And being under authority does not mean that a woman cannot teach or encourage or correct in any way, Paul is speaking specifically of the authority structure within the gathered church, of asserting that teaching authority over the congregation. Throughout scripture, we have examples of women who serve in their gifts in the church in various ways. We have Phoebe in Romans 16 was a, a deaconess. As the carrier of Paul's letter, she likely read it to the congregation. Priscilla in Acts 18 verse 26, along with her husband Aquila, instructs and corrects Apollos on his theology. She clearly was someone who had understanding and the authority to correct other believers. Whatever specifically Paul means by preach and, author- uh, pre- preach and assert authority or preach with authority, if we go that route, you know, whether it's two things or one, whatever he specifically means, it is clear he's referring specifically to assuming a position of authority over the church, not just blanket any kind of leadership or any kind of teaching in any way. He's speaking of of church structures. In 1 Corinthians 11, which I mentioned earlier, the women in the church are encouraged to pray and prophesy, but discouraged from engaging in the questioning and testing of the prophecies, which was the, the role of the elders. There are ways for Christian women to practice their gifts, to speak and to pray in public worship within God's ordained authoritative structure. What Paul is saying here doesn't prevent a woman from engaging in ministry, from engaging in using her spiritual gifts. And at the end of the day, whether you agree or vehemently disagree with me, what matters is that we're approaching God's word rightly. We're taking scripture seriously. 
I often see people on, on both sides of the can women be pastors debate handle the issue flippantly. They already have made their decision based on other factors. And when they come to the text, they cut and mangle it to, to make it fit what they already decided. They don't allow God to speak for himself, but try to put words in his mouth. As we approach texts like this, we first and foremost are seeking to honor God and his word, to hear what he has to say, what he has spoken. And secondly, when we deal with discussions like this, we want to be sure that we are not abusing his word to beat down others and discourage our sisters in the church. It's worth questioning our own motivations before we go into studies like this. The final verse in Paul's instruction for women is, is perhaps the most bizarre Paul writes, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And there have been there are a few, you know, ideas out there of what this means that I think are a little bit kooky, a little, a little unfounded. But one way this verse has been understand understood historically that I personally think makes the most sense is that Paul is referring not to generic childbearing, but to the childbearing. That is, Paul was just thinking of Genesis and the deception of Eve. He has on his mind God's promise to her that her seed would crush the serpent's head, that sin and death would be defeated by her offspring. Though Eve was deceived, she was saved through her own childbearing, which continued down the generations to the birth of Christ. And as the language changes to plural, uh, to speak of all women, Paul is saying this is the hope and the glory of all women in the kingdom, those who live in faith and love and holiness, that through what can only be done by a woman, the Savior of the world was born a man. Now, I'm sure this whole video so far has been very offensive and contentious for many people. I look forward to reading your comments, but I want to challenge you and myself with this question. Are we willing to submit to what God asks of us? Will we follow God even when it offends us? Jesus had a, a tendency to offend people in his ministry. We often like to think of Jesus as this sort of affirming, soft, huggable teddy that just snuggled everyone, but he was not afraid of controversy and at times seemed even very harsh. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not obviously not encouraging hate, but he's saying that our love and dedication for him should be that much greater than that for anything or anyone else that it's as if we hate them. If we cannot get past the idea that God would tell some people that he doesn't want them to do the thing they want to do, we're going to have a really hard time hating ourselves, picking up our cross and following him. Dying to ourselves is not comfortable. It's not natural. Our innate tendencies are towards self-preservation, comfort, and pleasure. And if this is not the topic where we have to deny our desires, there will be something else. I'll even say, if you're a Christian and somehow have never had to deny yourself at any point, you have never found any aspect of following Jesus difficult, you may not actually be following Jesus. You might just be following a God of your own invention. 
Well, that was chapter two of First Timothy. As always, I would love to hear from you, your comments, questions, and snide remarks. You can comment on the YouTube video, send a message on Instagram at Sinner Sufferers, or join the Discord server for some open conversations. You can find all of those links and more at sinnersandsufferers.com. I appreciate you being here, and I will see you later. Thank you.